three, two, one. Welcome to the Dave the Dog Trainer podcast, episode one hundred eight. One hundred eight. Um, all right, so we got another one we're going to kind of get right into today because this is going to be a fairly long one. Um, we got a, all sorts of things to talk about here. So, <clears throat> um, last podcast episode we did with uh, Co-op Canine, great episode. Check it out. But this episode is going to segue off of the episode we did right before that, which is where we broke down a Zach George video that came out. Um, when did it come out? It's actually right up there. It came out one month ago, you know, basically talking about the state of emergency of dog training. It was kind of his big hoorah towards let's push against balance training. Let's tell the world why science says balance training is so bad and why we should start outlawing these tools and not using them and this and that. And... That has sparked a goddamn war over the last couple of weeks in the dog training world, right? So we did a podcast episode on that two weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. It's really blown up on YouTube. A lot of comments and and stuff like that um, and and good dialogue back and forth. Um, And uh, it it just kind of showed me that there's a lot of people that want to keep knowing what's going on with this kind of stuff. And since then, right... A couple of different things have happened, right? So Ivan Blabinov has kind of joined in on this fight. He made a video 13 days ago, right? So uh, just a couple days after we made our podcast episode talking about um, Zach George's video that he made. And I remember when I listened to this podcast the night it came out, and I remember thinking to myself, this is the most well-put-together dog training podcast I think I've ever listened to in my life. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I want to do is we're going to this is going to be a couple part segment here. Right. So part one was the video we made the, a couple weeks ago talking about Zach George's stance on things. Part two is going to be today. We are going to break down this whole video that Ivan made. I'll see where I could add my two cents into it. I could help you guys understand some of the things he's talking about in it. But I do want to we're going to review the entire thing because it was so well put together. And for anybody that has any sort of interest into this debate and understanding why we do some of the things that we do, um, this is the man that you want to hear it from, right? Um, Ivan, for a lot of people, he'll break down his accolades and stuff in the beginning of this video so you can understand why he's probably the most qualified to actually have this conversation and break things down. Um, But I want to play this so everybody can hear the opposing side of the argument. And then what we'll do next week is we will break down all of the controversy that's stirred up since. And basically, there's been this back and forth war between Ivan, between Zach, between uh, other well-known trainers, um, and uh, we'll kind of break down my two cents on um, the the debates and arguments amongst them, right? Mm-hmm. So, without further ado, real quick, yeah, is it just me or does he kind of look like Emperor Palpatine? In his, <laughs> like, the, like Zach right George there. looks terrible he's, right there. He's got that Emperor Palpatine look. And dude, some of the TikToks he's made lately, like he's he's looking a little rough, man. Yeah, he's, his eyeballs like sunken into the back of his head and stuff. You know, might be losing some sleep over all this, huh? Maybe. <laughs> so without further ado, we're going to dive right into this and watch this video, The Real Facts About Science-Based Dog Training, a Training Without Conflict podcast by Ivan Balabanov. Let's, go. Let's make it fucking happen. Ivan Balabanov, and I'm a world-renowned professional dog trainer. I've been training dogs for more than 40 years. I was a guide dog instructor at San Rafael, California for five years. I was also animal behaviorist at the San Francisco SPCA in the early 90s before Gene Donaldson took over for another five years. 
I am a two-time world champion in a very demanding sport of IGP, which includes tracking, obedience, and protection, as well as 16-time national champion. I regularly do present... Two-time world champion, 16-time national champion. <laughs> I mean, just like that yeah. alone, and, and the reason why I think... A lot of people have come out and been like, well, he's just a sport dog trainer, this, that. Why is he qualified to have these conversations, this and that? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so so the format of the sport dog training world is, is as follows, right? You are training the dog, one, for true real-life examples and mm-hmm. tests of not only their physical capabilities but their mental capabilities, but also you are training a dog to listen solely to you without the need of any reinforcements or punishments, right? Mm-hmm. When you go out on the field, right? When you go out and you perform um, your your routines and stuff, some of these in the sport dog world can last up to 40, 45 minutes long, and Ooh. you cannot reward or punish the dog one time throughout the entire thing. And you're asking mm-hmm. the dog to do all sorts of really, really demanding exercises, right? Mm-hmm. So... Ivan currently, right now, is probably the single most accomplished dog trainer of our generation, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one very important thing to put out there where, yeah, Ivan's got whatever, 12,000 subscribers, and Zach George has like 5 million, right? Yeah. But I think we all know that somebody's popularity and fame does not make them qualified to be the best person of what they do. Yeah. Right? So, whatever. So, seminars and workshops around the world. I help animal shelters, rescue organizations, police departments, military services, and regular pet owners how to improve their training and, of course, solve any behavioral problems that that they may encounter during Mm -hmm. training. I'm fluent in every aspect of dog training and animal learning, including classical operant conditioning, etology, evolutionary psychology, and any other branch of science that is important to dog training. I place the biggest emphasis on the emotion of the dog during training because the objective of working with dogs is to create an environment and relationship where the dog is enjoying the work and the interaction with the trainer further breaking that down right there, right? So he t- he talked about the emotional well-being of the dog. Now, this is another reason why this is extremely important and what further qualifies Ivan to have some of these conversations, right? Mm-hmm. So in the sport of IGP, not only does the dog need to be able to physically perform all of these exercises, but you are rated and judged based on the dog's eagerness to perform those exercises. Yeah. So one thing you'll see commonly in the force-free world is you'll hear... Yeah, well, you could get the dogs to do it. You could force them to do it, but they're just shut down and they don't look good and this Mm. and that. Where not only are they training with aversives in this sport Mm -hmm. and training with positive reinforcement in this sport, but all of their emphasis goes into how do we get the dog willing participant and happy to do these things for us because that's what they're getting graded off of. 100%. So it's just going against already going against all the arguments of he is a balanced trainer. He does use aversives, but mm-hmm. on top of that, he has dogs that are happy to work yeah. and he's proved it through <laughs> oh, multiple yeah. world championships <laughs> and national championships. Yeah. 
It should go without saying that I'm a big advocate of positive reinforcement, shaping, and play. But because of the nature of this presentation, I feel that I need to emphasize that. Without everything that I mentioned so far, excellent training will not be possible at all. Positive reinforcement is a powerful and effective tool for teaching and controlling behavior. However, sometimes positive reinforcement is not going to be successful what? in our ability to succeed. I mean, for the cases. people that are listening to this, he's showing videos of him teaching dogs how to skateboard, him teaching dogs how to use an actual toilet to go to the bathroom. Yeah. There are often instances where other training methods or approaches are more appropriate or effective. Let's be clear that reinforcements and punishments are intended to control behavior. As a professional dog trainer, this is the most important task of the job. If a trainer limits themselves to one or two of the operant quadrants and it's not able to make a breakthrough before they decide to recommend uh, euthanasia or add psychotropic medication, there are two more options within the operant quadrants that have proven to work in real world as well as in hundreds of scientific peer-reviewed research. As I said, I will be offering references. So here is the first one. There is a very well-written book, Punish by Rewards. It discusses some of the problems with positive reinforcement. Now, the first thing that I want to discuss is if using aversive in dog training has any place at all. I will point out a number of benefits. The force-free advocates, backed by some research and the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behaviorists, have been pushing the ban on shock collars in the United States for quite some time now. The narrative is always the same. Most slogans begin with science says and modern and ethical training have proven that there is no place whatsoever for using aversive and that there are better ways to train a dog. At the end of the day, this is extremely false propaganda and narrative that only hurts pet owners looking for help. Here is a part of the mission statement the AVSAB published this year. The application of aversive methods, which by definition rely on application of force, pain, or emotional or physical discomfort, should not be used in canine training or for the treatment of behavioral disorders. Training effectiveness. The reward-based training methods have been shown to be more effective than aversive methods. Multiple survey studies have shown higher obedience in dogs trained with reward-based methods. Hilby et al. found that obedience levels were highest for dogs trained exclusively with reward-based methods and lowest for dogs trained exclusively. <laughs> this is the biggest thing right here, right? exclusively with reward-based methods versus exclusively with aversive-based methods. Yeah. Right? We're not referring to balanced dog training in this equation. No. Aversive-based methods. Dogs trained with combination of reward and aversive-based methods, often referred to as balanced in the dog training industry, produce lower obedience level than reward-based, but better than, than exclusively averse-based training. Aversive training has been shown to impair dogs' ability to learn new tasks. This is a dogmatic statement and it's quite misleading. 
there is a lot to unpack in these statements. But before I go into scientific research that proves otherwise, let's start with sound reasoning without taking sides. The dog training industry only suffers from such ignorance and blatant propaganda. Like it or not, everyone knows that punishment works and sometimes is necessary. Let me explain how and why we know this. How to respond to punishment and reinforcement was not something you had to learn. It's programmed in you. We all come born knowing it. In fact, this is the most fundamental law on our planet for all living things, including the most primitive single-cell organisms. We are born this way. It's baked in our DNA. We approach something good or pleasant and we avoid something bad and harmful. This helps all living things to navigate the world and make decisions that are in their best interests. Based on this, Skinner named the positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, also known as the operant conditioning quadrants. And this is how we can control and guide most behaviors, humans or dogs. In operant conditioning, we talk about reinforcement and punishing and in etology about costs and benefits. The AVSAB and some of the force-free advocates want you to believe that we can operate strictly within the positive reinforcement and negative punishment quadrants excluding completely positive punishment and negative reinforcement from all of our training and at the same time achieve superior outcomes than if we have the option to use all four. The use of aversive is being demonized not because positive reinforcement is better, but because it contradicts force-free narratives. Not to mention monopolizing the industry, which I will get to later because this is a real problem that does not help working with dogs as effectively and humanely as possible. It is intended that the AVSAB will be staffed by the most well-educated doctors who will present unbiased science in order for us, all of us, to be more successful. Unfortunately, their rationale goes against billions of years of successful survival of all living things on planet Earth, and it has been debunked over and over again by sound scientific research. I have to repeat this once again. While it would be ideal to find ways to avoid the use of aversive in training and behavior modification, it is important to recognize that to avoid something unpleasant and approach something pleasant are fundamental biological responses that are ingrained in all living things. Okay, so let's break a lot of this down initially. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the initial stance that Ivan is making from just a fundamental perspective here is that, as he just said, right, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, all four quadrants just exist. Whether yeah. we implement them in, or not, right? Mm -hmm. All of our behavior is contingent on all of those four things, oh, right? Yeah. There are numerous gazillion different examples of situations where punishment or negative reinforcement just happens in nature and controls our behavior, right? Yeah. From a primitive standpoint to us living just in the real 21st century right now, 100%. right? Now, Zach's argument is not that it doesn't exist. Zach's argument is that why would you intentionally apply it 
in your training program to mm. work with the dog, right? And I actually don't recall Ivan specifically breaking that down and answering it. <clears throat> so I want to add in just a little bit of two cents as far as that's concerned, right? Okay. So from a reward-based standpoint and from a dog training standpoint in general, right, one of the most important skills a dog trainer can have or a um, dog owner can have to keep their dog successful is to control the environment around them, right? Mm. Meaning the better we can manage the situations we put our dog in, the things that are happening in the environment, like people and dogs not approaching your dog or, or, or stuff like that, right? That's going to help to keep your dog successful with things. The more successful the dog will ultimately be through their training, right? Now, there are situations where we can't control the environment, right? I can't control when squirrels are going to pop out of nowhere. I can't get control when a dog surprises us around the corner while we're out on a walk. I can't control numerous different things, the loud noise that happens or the car that backfires on the busy road or something that may spook the dog. So by providing things into the environment as punishment, we could further combat and control the things happening in the environment, which keeps the dog successful through this stuff, mm -hmm. right? So I understand what they're getting at with it, but at the same time, if we want to control, if we're telling people control the environment, we could further control the things that we don't have control of by providing other things into the environment to combat those motivators to our yeah. dog, right? Mm -hmm. So let's keep going. They're through natural evolution or grand design. These responses are fundamental part of how we navigate and make decisions in the world. So. Whenever you hear science says and evidence based coming from force-free advocates, we must use extreme caution and ask questions. The evidence of the opposite is overwhelming and it hasn't changed since the early research. The force-free trainers love to label trainers who don't abide to their mantras as punitive, coercive, and so on. The narrative that punishment is bad, fear is bad, negative reinforcement is bad, is misleading and dangerous propaganda. It is intended to promote and benefit only certain type of people involved in dog training. The dog industry has become very trendy. The number of pet dogs and the need of training has exploded. In recent years, the veterinarians have discovered that they can have a big chunk of the pie and are, in my opinion, monopolizing the dog training industry by cherry-picking methodologies that will benefit their paychecks. Politicians also get involved and... Paychecks meaning, and I've said this numerous times before, I get slack for this all the time, right? The medication side of things. Mm -hmm. Every single time I have a client that has a dog that behaves poorly at the vet clinic, instead of the vet either going, hey, here's some training things you could work on to combat this, or... Hey, it's pretty freaking normal that your dog would not like being at the vet because they're getting poked and prodded and only come here once a year and obviously mm -hmm. are not going to have a very positive association with things. They all jump right to, you need to put your dog on medication because there's something seriously wrong with your dog. Here's the trazodone. Here's the trazodone. Here's the <laughs> gabapen. Here's the freaking uh, Prozac. Here's yeah. all these other things, right? And I'm telling you guys. There's, there's got to be a ridiculous profit margin in that, mm -hmm. right? And you look at every single one of the organizations Zach likes to state are like, these are the ones that say this isn't necessary. 
almost every single one of them is some sort of veterinarian organization or veterinarian behaviorist organization who their number one go-to is prescribed medication. Mm-hmm. That's how they get their chunk of the pie, like I've been saying. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, imagine if a human doctor like misprescribed somebody something, how much trouble they would get in. Kate and I talk about this all the time because uh, obviously she works in the medical field, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no money in preventative care. Yeah. Right? Like, like from a human standpoint, there's no money to be made in preventative care. If we teach people how to be healthier and how to overcome their issues, mm-hmm. they don't need to come to the doctors anymore and they exactly. stop spending money. Yep. Right? It's the same deal with dogs. If we teach these dogs to just be better, right, and we actually solve some of these problems, there's mm-hmm. no reason why they would need to continue coming to these veterinarian behaviorists. Exactly. To spend a lot of money. Yep. We we have to understand that they don't have the time to educate themselves on on what is going on in the dog's world, and they are very quick to pick sides without putting the time and effort to really understand what is going on. We have learned to voice quick, but not always well-thought opinions. In fact, in society, we are presented with a simple question. Are you the good guy or the bad guy? If you use punishment, you must be the bad guy. And if you don't use punishment, then you must be the good guy. This gets manipulating but touching soft spots in your heart and who ultimately wants to be the bad guy. As much as we are against the use of punishment and penalties, can anyone imagine a society where there are no penalties for breaking rules, no cops, no jails? It's a wishful thinking, and I do hope that maybe one day we can construct such society. But for now, we still must abide <laughs> by the fundamental law that I already told you about. Oddly enough, the force-free trainers do understand that without some point of punishment, we will not be able to reinforce rules anymore. Living without rules in society is a huge problem. As much as they don't like to admit it, they do accept the fact that punishment is part of life on planet Earth, and it happens daily around all of us. It is critical to agree that punishment in some cases might be the only option to stop unacceptable or dangerous to self or others' behavior. This is not about how we feel about punishment. It's a well-documented research in hundreds of scientific papers that cannot be argued with, period. There is no such thing. Everyone punishes at some point. We must. Even the force-free, hardcore ideologists have to use some sort of punishment if they want to have at least some successful outcome. Regardless of what the ultimate narrative is, punishment in nature is unavoidable. According to the force-free community, if any punishment is to be used, it should only be negative punishment. So, let's briefly go over the concept of negative punishment. It's a type of punishment that involves taking something away in order to decrease the likelihood of a behavior occurring again in the future. The concept of negative punishment is to make a behavior less rewarding or enforcing, which will reduce its frequency or likelihood to happen again. The advocates of the force-free approach clinch to the argument that negative punishment is a socially acceptable form of punishment because it does not involve physical punishment. 
However, negative punishment can be just as harsh or abusive approach. Let's take a look how the brain responds to negative and positive punishment. The truth is that the brain responds to both types of punishment in the exact same way. They both involve an aversive or unpleasant experience in order to stop undesired behavior happening in the future. When a behavior is punished, the brain's amygdala and the orbifrontal cortex, OFC, are activated. The amygdala is involved in processing emotions, including fear and anxiety. And the OFC is involved in decision-making and evaluating the consequences of the dog's action. So again, whenever a behavior is punished, the brain experiences an aversive or unpleasant stimulus, which result in decrease in the frequency of the likelihood of that behavior to occur in the future. It is important to note that punishment, whether positive or negative, it's not always the most effective way to change behavior. But in some cases, it might be the only option we have to successfully stop the behavior. Because of punishment, eventually the trainer might be able to open the door for desired behavior to happen more frequently so they can be now rewarded. This is also well-recorded research. Moreover, in order for negative punishment to be effective, certain criteria must be met. First, the dog must want what is being withheld or taken away. Second, the trainer administering the punishment must have total control over the dog and what they want. These criteria are not always possible to meet, especially when working with dogs. For example, a dog may not care about a particular reward or may be able to find an alternative source for it. To make things more complicated, what is reinforcing the So um, I posted a clip discussing this, right? Um, mm-hmm. That was from the Zach George episode where I was talking about, yeah, because they get into, again, technically speaking, you don't need to use the aversives. There's a way around it. And I said, yeah, that's true, right? Assuming what you have to give the dog is I've, is always of higher value yep. than the thing that they want, right? Mm-hmm. To which some girl did like a spliced video with it. And she's like, well, you could use the, the I think she called it the pre-Mac principle, right? Which is, you know, again, we got fancy terms. Yeah. Here, right. <coughs> Whatever. So basically what she described the pre-Mac principle as is the concept of using a lower value behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Or sorry, using a higher value behavior to reinforce a lower value behavior, right? Meaning we're using our competing motivator to reinforce the dog. So basically, mm-hmm. we're withholding the competing motivator temporarily. So yeah. in the case of the squirrel, right? If I really want the dog to sit in that moment, right? I could essentially withhold that competing motivator, right? Until the dog finally sits and then allow the dog to have access to that competing motivator. But again, mm. we get back to controlling environments here. I don't always have control over the competing motivators. Yep. There are times that the competing motivator is not something that is ever appropriate to the dog to have. Yeah. Right. So if we're saying our competing motivator is that our dog really wants to bite Aunt Sue, right? <laughs> I'm obviously yeah. not going to wait until the dog doesn't do something that I don't want them to do and then go allow them to bite Aunt Sue as yeah, a reward, exactly. right? 100%. Or if I need my dog to walk politely with me past the deer, right? Mm-hmm. 
and they really want to get to the deer. And then the second they do that properly, I release the dog from it and let them go and run after the deer. That's not a situation that's always appropriate for the dog to do. Yeah. Right. So it still holds true. What Ivan is saying is by implementing punishment in those situations, though that may not 100% solve the issue or solve the dog's emotional well-being that they like to call, right, or yeah. or make them confident in the choice that they should be making ultimately, mm -hmm. what will happen is it will make that a little bit less rewarding for the dog to want to engage in, opening yeah. up the possibility for me to then reinforce appropriate behavior. Mm-hmm may not be clear or not possible to control, which makes the use of negative punishment obsolete. In 2008, a German study comparison of stress and learning effects of three different training methods in dogs, led by Schalke and Salgiri, found that negative punishment increased cortisol level, which is a marker of stress, significantly more than using electric or prong collar Come back and watch football no. all season long, <laughs> live and cable-free with YouTube TV. If you own a dog, you need to know about Susan Garrett. It doesn't matter if you think your dog is well-trained. <laughs> Susan is one that of there's the a force free yeah, I know. Dogs. That's, that's pretty funny. Dogs. This suggests that negative punishment may be more stressful for dogs than other forms of punishment. One of the benefits of using positive punishment is that the intensity can be varied, whereas with negative punishment, the intensity is all or nothing. Often, to demonstrate the power of negative punishment, we use human examples. We can take child's PlayStation or their phone away and instruct them that they will only get it back when they do this or that. Negative punishment is used in dog training, of course, but the dog's understanding of the punishment and the behavior being punished is limited compared to humans' understanding. A major difference between humans and dogs is the ability of humans to be instructed. Humans have the ability to learn from others through communication and instruction, which allows them to acquire new skills and knowledge in a very different way than dogs. Humans can be directly instructed and educated about the reason behind certain actions and punishments. Humans and dogs are different in a number of ways, but perhaps one of the most significant differences is the ability of humans to engage in abstract thinking. Abst so we get into then further, you know, though we like to Though we like to humanize things a lot and, and help use examples of like human situations to describe dog situations, right? Sure. The biggest differentiation between the two is the fact that with a human, I could explain to you why you're getting a timeout, right? I could explain to you mm -hmm. how if you behave in this manner, that'll allow you to do this at a later time, right? So getting yep. back to the pre-MAC principle, I believe one of the common examples they'll use of it is we could incentivize a child to eat their vegetables by allowing them to have ice cream later only if they eat their vegetables, right? Which, mm. again... Yes, that's a great way to motivate a child to do something that they don't necessarily want to do. Yeah. But I could reason with them in that moment of, I know you don't want to do this right now, but as long as you do it later, I may allow you to do this thing, right? That's yeah. much, much, much more difficult to be able to explain to a dog if we wanted to use a, a different motivator that they may like more. So let's say they can't go, I'm not going to let them go chase that squirrel. But if I tell mm -hmm. them, if you behave on the walk right now, when we get home, you're going to get this 
whatever treat that's the highest value. You're going to get yeah. two scoops of dinner instead of one scoop of dinner or something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. I can't articulate that to them in that moment, no. right? There's no way to clearly outline that to them. The only way that that process would work is if in that moment I gave them that higher value competing motivator, which yeah. we don't always have control of, or it's not always appropriate to give to them. Hmm. Thinking refers to the ability to understand and think about complex ideas and concepts that are not directly tied to physical objects or experiences. This ability allows humans to engage in a wide range of activities from solving mathematical problems to creating art and music. Dogs learn best through trial and error and through associations between certain actions and consequences. With a child, we can use negative punishment, for example, like this. I'm taking your bike away until you improve your grades at school. With dogs, we really cannot create that sentence in order for the dog to understand. So when we use oh. negative punishment, we are leaving it up to the dog to decide what it's being punished and what needs to change. This is what I mean by not being able to be instructed. Time out. Time out as punishment is another popular form of punishment amongst the force-free community and of course other dog training. There are several types of timeouts, but not to go in depth, the, the basic concept is basically removing the dog from the environment. Just like the negative punishment, timeouts can work quite well. But how do timeouts affect the dog compared to positive punishment? Here is another interesting study for you to consider. Just think, the challenge of the disengaged mind by Timothy D. Wilson done in 2014. In 11 studies, they found that participants typically did not enjoy spending 6 to 15 minutes in a room by themselves with nothing to do and that many prefer to administer electric shocks to themselves instead of being left alone with their thoughts. What is striking is that simply being alone with their own thoughts for 15 minutes was apparently so aversive that it drove many participants to self-administer an electric shock that they had earlier said they would pay to avoid. There so this is where you get into the idea that negative punishment has proven to be in scientific experiments, in peer-reviewed experiments, to be more aversive than positive punishment. These mm. people, because they were so averse to being left to themselves, yeah. administered self-harming behaviors, which is why we'll see dogs sometimes in kennels when they get too stir-crazy in there. If they're too averse to being in a timeout in the kennel, we'll start doing self-mutilating behaviors, yeah. which otherwise would be very uncomfortable for them to do, but they're so bored that it helps get their mind off of the aversive of what they're doing in that moment, right? Yeah. So then the next question would be, well, if it's so aversive, why wouldn't we just use it? To the point Ivan said just a minute ago, it is so, so, so challenging to be able to effectively attach those types of punishments to behaviors because we cannot articulate clearly enough what they're for and it winds up being left to the, own, the dog's own devices to figure out what it's for, right? Yeah. And in most cases when we do that, the dog is not going to pick in their mind the thing we want every time mm -hmm. and you could wind up creating more confusion and more stress because the dog cannot figure out what it is they need to do to avoid that punishment. Yeah.
plenty of research of the side effects of timeouts that if I begin to list references, this video will become quite long. But here is one more that is of importance. Harris and Hirschfeld found that non-contingent release from timeouts may be critical factor leading to negative associated effects. In the beginning of this article, I asked the question, is there a place for the use of aversives? The force-free dogma is that positive reinforcement is the superior option to work with dogs. They use slogans like this one, balanced traditional trainers are stuck in task training and that's why they use tools. How can aversive will ever be suitable to train dogs? Or would you do this to a child? Fear-based training has been proven to be damaging and so on. These are once again slogans that touch soft place in our hearts and we are forced to make that decision if we are good or bad person. Ultimately, not based on scientific research, incorrect and dangerous narrative that is being forced upon pet owners and dog trainers. Dogs are social animals. The way they interact with the world is mostly by using aversives, instead of giving each other food as rewards. They do bite each other during play or if they want to establish dominance and so on. Clearly, aversives are the most functional communication tool amongst animals and dogs. This is by far the most natural way for dogs to communicate with each other. Here I will add another study for those that are questioning my statement. Punishment in Animal Societies by T.H. Clutton-Brock and G.A. Parker in 95. Positive punishment. Now, let's go over what science... To break that down real quick. So, Zach George is another video he made, I think a couple days after he made that state of emergency dog training crisis mm. video where he talked about, but what about dogs that correct each other? To which he tr he tried to justify by saying that dogs punishing each other is such a small part of their social interactions. They're really quite, uh, what was the term that he used? Um, <laughs> they're, they're really quite cooperative creatures and work together to accomplish their goals. Mm. <laughs> Though I'm sure that a part of their life is cooperatively working towards yeah, their goals, for sure. dogs and all animals communicate to each other using aversives. That is their primary oh, yeah. means of communication. Yeah. Right? Um, very rarely do you ever see any sort of situation where a dog is rewarding another dog for correct behavior because they're opportunists. And all they do is they apply punishment for things that they don't like to assert dominance and control over each other. Yep. And then once that hierarchy is established and they've established their rules and boundaries, then they go about just living their lives with each other. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. Uh, and the thing that killed me about Zach's argument against it was just, well, it's only sometimes. It's like, well, yeah, punishment is only like we're not using it all the yeah. time. Like for like like every twenty four hour or every hour of the twenty four hours I spend with my dog is not me punishing them. Exactly. Right. As about aversives, I will begin with positive punishment. Is there a place for it? Is it at all that bad? From early years of behaviorism, Skinner was very much against the use of punishment in operant conditioning. It's believed that positive punishment is the least effective person. Vivid Seats, your ticket to ninth inning nail biters, third period penalty kill. Skinner himself. 
Here are some of the major arguments against positive punishment. Punishment induces emotional changes that interfere with learning. But so will positive reinforcement or any other approach when used inappropriately. Nevertheless, studies show that the effectiveness of positive punishment in reducing problem behaviors tends to be associated with a wealth of positive side effects. The positive side effects tend to far outnumber any negative side effects associated with positive punishment. Many studies have found that using punishment as a behavior modification technique may also increase the incidence of wanted behaviors. Punishment provokes aggression. Well, aggression response is not strictly... To, to quickly tag on to what he just said, by implementing punishment for things we don't want, it opens up more opportunity for the things we do want, which opens up more opportunity for us to implement positive reinforce to reinforcement. Reinforcement to reinforce those things. Mm. Related to positive punishment or negative punishment. In fact, experiments have shown that parts of positive reinforcement are aversive as well and will lead to aggression. The transition from food reinforcement to extinction is an aversive event and aggression is sometimes a major side effect of that extinction. This is why the marine world trainers invented the least reinforcement scenario, the LRS, which is basically a form of bribing with certain criteria but with questionable effect. Fortunately, further research on aggression has demonstrated that the problem of elicited aggression is not really serious in most situations because aggression can be easily suppressed through the use of contingent punishment. Furthermore, it has been demonstrated that near zero levels of elicited aggression could be produced by punishing each attack even when non-contingent shocks were scheduled every 30 seconds during two-hour sessions. Clearly, if aggression was not punished in our society, one would... So let's break that down. So mm -hmm. what he just said was that punishment has been proven to suppress aggression to near zero. Now, we're not saying 100% zero, mm -hmm. right? But near zero. Even in the presence of non-contingent punishment being delivered every 30, I think it was every 30 or 30 seconds every two hours or something like that, right? Okay. Now, what he's saying by that, non-contingent punishment means inconsistent and random, right? Mm -hmm. So if punishment in general created aggression and we're taking improper use of punishment, which would be that non-contingent punishment that he's referring to, so me randomly punishing you for something mm -hmm. that you don't know what it's for, but the punishment is still consistently happening during the aggressive responses, mm -hmm. the suppression is still there. Yeah. Meaning that it's not, even in improper uses, it's not increasing aggression. For sure. It's not. It's still suppressing the behavior. Mm -hmm. Expect that attacks would occur in nearly all situations that involve punishment and reinforcement or extinction. Luckily for us, this type of behavior is, is itself reliably suppressed. Positive punishment is ineffective. This is another very common argument, and there are plenty of research finding that indicate punishment can be highly effective for treatment of variety of behavior disorders. Moreover, 
punishment also has been proven in so many instances to be more effective than the treatment with positive reinforcement techniques or extinction. Although the use of positive punishment has been controversial for numbers of years, research findings suggest that punishment still remains an important option for behavior problems. Here is one very big reason why sometimes positive punishment is the best option. It is especially effective when the reinforcers maintaining the problem behavior cannot be identified and or controlled. Remember when we talked earlier about negative punishment, I said that the owner or trainer has to be able to control the environment and the reinforcer, otherwise negative punishment will not be successful. And this is where positive punishment comes into place. Positive punishment also without a doubt is the treatment of choice for life-threatening behavior that must be suppressed rapidly to prevent serious harm to self or others. Punishment induces emotional changes that interfere with learning. So again, just breaking those down real quick. So what we're implying is that punishment is the most effective option or efficient option when you cannot identify why the dog is rehearsing the behavior. If I can't figure out why this dog is rehearsing this thing, because there are some cases in dogs that have serious neurological issues that they're rehearsing it just because. Mm -hmm. right? Literally, there may not be a deeply ingrained reason for the dog to do it. They're just simply doing it. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I cannot remove the reinforcement behind the behavior to try to create extinction, mm -hmm. nor can I withhold the thing that the dog wants mm -hmm. in order to get them to stop doing that behavior, right? Yeah. Or in situations where you can't control the environment. So back to the squirrel, right? I cannot use the squirrel as my reinforcement. I cannot do that. I have no control over that. Mm -hmm. I cannot control the person walking around the corner. So I need to provide additional reinforcements into the environment to get the dog to shift its attention to me. So I'm further controlling the environment to make myself the most relevant thing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but so will positive reinforcement or any... In the last part of it was obviously or in situations where there are serious life-threatening issues or just things of serious magnitude. So we use the example all the time of, yes, I do believe that you could teach somewhat reliably a dog not to jump on people without the use of a physical punishment. It's definitely possible. Nobody's yeah. saying it's not possible. But do I want to take the risk that my reinforcement and my timing is not going to be appropriate enough to stop it when my 86-year-old grandmother comes over and if my 150-pound dog goes to jump on her, they could potentially cause her to have a serious life-threatening injury over it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. Punishment is a more effective and efficient tool for guaranteeing that I could stop it like that and make sure that situation doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Other approach when misused. Nevertheless, studies show the effectiveness of positive punishment in reducing problem behavior tends to be associated with a wealth of positive side effects. The positive side effects tend to outnumber any negative side effects associated with positive punishment. Reported studies have found that using punishment as a behavior modification technique may also increase the incidence of wanted behaviors. One silly argument is that punishment does not teach a desired behavior. Well, 
Punishment is not supposed to teach dogs new behaviors or what to do in place of the problem behavior. This is why we have positive and negative reinforcement. They are extremely effective for teaching alternative behaviors. Punishment creates fear. Before you agree to this, let's look at the statement without using our initial emotional response. Fear can be extremely beneficial in teaching and learning in certain contexts, particularly in situations where there is a need for self-preservation or the prevention of harm. Oh. Many harmful encounters can be avoided strictly to exposure and some element of fear without the need to experience serious physical harm. I will mention here again the most fundamental law on earth for all living things. We approach something good and we avoid something bad. With some dogs, it's important to teach them to be afraid of certain behaviors or actions that could be dangerous for them or others. For example, this is the fucking key. Because this is my, I've said this so many times on this podcast, my biggest issue with most modern balanced dog trainers out there. And as we get into part three, which is going to be next week, where we talk about the different trainers that have jumped into this and their stances, the mm -hmm. thing that fucking kills me is when I see these balanced trainers come on and they try to sugarcoat and pander to the fucking force-free crowd of, we're not using these tools as negative or to create fear or this or that. This is what I loved so much about Ivan's stance on all of this stuff from the beginning when he first started doing his podcast last year yeah. and coming out there, is he's saying it how it is, and he's saying it 100% truthfully, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, your emotional instinct, the first time you see punishment will create fear. You're like, whoa, well, I don't want to create fear. But literally, <laughs> look at your day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. and look at all of the things that could possibly happen if you altered your behavior, if you were not scared of certain repercussions for your actions. Yep. I could list out hundreds of things that could possibly happen to me in one single day that all terrify me, mm -hmm. terrify me, right? Oh, yeah. I don't live in fear over it, but the potential consequence, I am scared of happening. I do not want it to happen. And that is a powerful motivator for me to live in a civilized society. Yeah, 100%. Well, depending where you live and what you do with the dog, it may be very important to teach it to respect cars. When done by an expert trainer, even the worst car chaser can be taught to avoid and ignore them throughout creating some respect for the cars through some fear. For those of you that remember the famous dog chaser, Despite her intelligence and training, she had to learn as well that cars are something you don't challenge or mess with. John Paley mentions this in his book, that Chaser was quite stubborn, but ultimately learned to respect the cars. A certain amount of fear is also the most natural way to teach a dog not to chase livestock. And there is plenty of comprehensive research done to back this statement. In many instances, fear can serve as a powerful motivator for learning and can help dogs to develop good habits and behaviors that keeps them safe. Fear can also help dogs to understand and respect boundaries, which can be important in maintaining a safe and harmonious relationship with their owners and others. Learned helplessness. It's an extremely famous study that gets constantly pointed to 
It's done by Seligman and Meyer in 1967. The force-free community always refers to as the worst-case scenario that may happen, so we, we have to go over this one as well. They found that if dogs were initially exposed to an inescapable electrical stimulus, they would not try to learn an avoidance strategy later, even when one was available. They suggested that the animal had learned that it was helpless in its ability to avoid the aversive. This research was subsequently used as a model of depression, but is of questionable validity. Two years after the original study, Meyer et al., 1969, found that pre-training of avoidance with an electrical aversive increased resistance to the development of learned helplessness, perhaps increasing psychological resilience in the face of inescapable aversion. Early experience and other factors contributing to individual differences may also affect the tendency to develop learned helplessness in the response to non-contingent aversives. The result of Meyer et al. described above have more recently been re-evaluated along with other experimental studies in rats by psychologists with an interest in the development of positive psychology. In this context, exposure of aversives that can be controlled by the animal's behavior help to build increased resilience, not only to the aversive in question, but more broadly to stressors. Just theoretically, it God, there, there is so much to unpack with some of the things. I remember, yeah. dude, literally, when I was listening to this when it first came out, I was yeah. in my car, I listened to it in my car. This is my second time only listening to this, and I feel like I'm like re-listening to it all over again. Yeah, there's a lot. Right, there's just so much to unpack. So let's break down two of the things he just talked about there, right? So learned helplessness, the concept of learned helplessness is basically that if you're improperly using aversives, you could quote unquote ruin your dog by teaching them there is absolutely no escape to unpleasant things happening, mm. which will cause them to become more aggressive because their escape mechanism, their flight is completely gone, or you will just psychologically destroy your dog, right? It's basically mm. the concept of it. How they did this test in the scientific experiment where they initially talked about it is they basically took a box and they electrocuted the floor at ridiculously high levels, right? They blocked the dog's ability to escape that electric stimulus. Mm. And after the dog panicked and fought it for a while, the dog eventually just gave up and said, this is going to happen to me and there's nothing that I could do about it. Right. So it's, first off, it's the most inhumane experiment you could do. And two, yeah. there's basically no trainer on the face of the planet that would ever come close to simulating that exact same situation to a dog. Yeah, exactly. Right? <clears throat> From there, what they did in the experiment is after they put the dog into learned helplessness, they opened up the escape mm -hmm. and the dog didn't even try to escape, even though the escape was clearly right there. And I, I'm pretty sure it was done with dogs. It might have been done with, I think it was done with dogs, but it may have been done with rats, whatever. The animal that it was done with did not try to escape, right? Further proving that you ruined the dog, right? Now, I don't think it was in this podcast. In another podcast Ivan did where he spoke with a, an actual scientist that studies rats in controlled environments, they discussed then 
They further ran tests on the equation after the fact and showed that even the dogs that were put into a state of learned helplessness, Mm -hmm. right? So the state that the dog is completely ruined at that point, it's basically the point of no return, right, for animals. Mm -hmm. They were able to recondition their association fairly easily and have the dog realize once again that they were in control of the behavior and the aversives happening around them. Yeah. So it wasn't that ruinable. This is where when True. people talk about if you use aversives, if you use non-science-based training, you're going to ruin your dog and you'll never be able to change it. Even under the worst case scenario of if you did hit that point with your dog, it's still fixable then at that point. Exactly. Past the learn helpless conversation, Ivan talked about the use of aversives and the use of teaching the dog they are in control of escaping and avoiding things, right? Mm-hmm. So in the they could avoid a punishment for something, right? Or they can escape a negative reinforcement sensation and, and be in control of those types of things. It has proven to create more resilience in the animal. So we talk about how the use of aversives can build confidence and build the dog's emotional well-being by making them stronger. Yeah. Right. It's like with humans. We talked about this on the podcast with Co-op Canine the other day where I said some of the worst things that have happened to me in my professional career that I've experienced have made me a stronger, more capable business owner because I realized that even in the face of these things that were really, really scary, mm-hmm. I was able to overcome it, which yeah. built confidence. And the same can apply for your animals. For sure. Where by catering and coddling and sheltering and doing all of those Mm -hmm. things, you create a weaker state of mind, Mm -hmm. which further goes to show why aversives can be very beneficial in your training program. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at, uh, you know, humans where let's say they had a a easier time growing up or, you know, they had everything kind of spoon fed to them. I mean, you know, it's (laughs) what is that? It's born with the silver spoon in your mouth or whatever but and listen there's a tipping point with all of this oh for sure you know what i mean like there's yeah. a balance it's not like if only uh, yeah. bad things ever yeah. happen to you growing up you're gonna be like <laughs> yeah you're gonna in a the... great state of <laughs> yeah. mind right yeah yeah there's obviously things to overcome for yes. each but i think if you if you you have a better chance of doing something better if you've had those yeah. adversive moments in your life that yeah oh i can overcome these hurdles 100 to do something better 100 percent. all right let's keep going his controlled exposure to aversive could somewhat paradoxically improve the long-term well-being of dogs. Positive punishment just as positive reinforcement. He has several rules that must be followed in order to be successful. But this is an extensive topic that can only be learned at dog training schools or, or other extensive training. Get cable-free live TV made easy without the cords or hassle. YouTube TV. Terms apply. Cancel anytime. Nature-inspired fragrances that tackle tough pet odors. New Airwick Pet Expert. Negative reinforcement. Most fun games, most popular games involve negative reinforcement. The easiest one as far as understanding the concept is hot hands. I give it as an excellent example to my students at my dog training school to demonstrate how negative reinforcement is not about creating unhealthy fear and emotional damage, but a fun game everyone likes to play. We clearly use negative reinforcement in every so-called contact sports, from boxing to football, soccer, basketball, and so on. They are based on escape and avoid, which leads to reward. 
It is important to understand the fundamentals of negative reinforcement so you can avoid the negative side effects. Pointing out only negative side effects which are due to incompetent use is unfair. We can do the same with positive reinforcement, of course. Not too much. Real quick for anybody that cares about negative reinforcement, because I don't think he goes into this in depth. Negative reinforcement is using an aversive to teach something, right? Mm. So it's not a correction. It's very different than a correction, but it's still using the aversive you would use for a correction. Yeah. <clears throat> so the idea of it is I will apply some sort of aversive, teach the dog how to avoid it, and have that aversive turn off when the dog completes the correct behavior. Now, mm. a lot of people are focused on the aversive. The dog is focused on the release of the aversive or the off switch of the aversive. Mm. So let's say I'm teaching a bed. I apply stimulation. Dog gets on the bed. Stimulation comes off. The dog is learning how to escape that stimulation by getting onto the bed. And furthermore, the release of the stimulation creates a positive association, right? They mm -hmm. turned off pressure and they're like, wow, this thing I'm doing right now is really good, mm -hmm. right? Which is why properly used, you don't see a lot of the, the fear and anxiety and stuff they talk about because it creates clarity. It yeah. teaches the dog you're in control over aversives, right? Mm -hmm. You can escape this sensation and it's not something to be super fearful of, right? For anybody who wants to actually see negative reinforcement in action, I just did a trainer consult, an in-person one at the facility. I think it was in dog vlog number like 106. I think I have it right here, actually. Hold on, let me see. Do, do, do. Yeah, dog vlog 107, right? It's about 20... Seven minutes into dog vlog 107 where I did this trainer consult where I used negative reinforcement to teach a dog a bed stay. And it's the whole start to finish of it where you could see the process. You could see how it didn't stress the dog out. It didn't create all of this fear and how effectively the dog was able to figure it out. So that's going to be a great place for you guys to look if you guys want to see it in action. Cool. That ever since the 1975 study done by Michael, which says that every reinforcement includes both positive and negative form. It is quite unfortunate that the AVSAB would rather recommend psychotropic medication so lightheadedly when behavior therapies, including some form of aversives, can eliminate most behavior problems without the white and dangerous side effects of psychotropic medications. We're almost to the point to talk about shock collars, but not <laughs> the most popular dog training equipment that the force-free leaders demand should be the only training equipment used. These training tools are falsely presented as non-aversive, therefore they do not cause pain, discomfort or fear. Let's first take a look at the so-called no-pull harness. <laughs> the way this harness works, the way it convinces a dog not to pull, is simply through discomfort. It really doesn't matter what kind of marketing and sugar-coated lines the force-free gurus are using to convince you, the no-pull harness is 100% aversive equipment. Anyone who argues with this, no matter what titles they may have in front or behind their names, must accept the fact that they are not speaking the truth. Here is how it works. The straps that go under the legs restrict movement through discomfort. If the dog stops pulling, it escapes the discomfort. 
Therefore, unarguably negative reinforcement is used and so is positive punishment here. If you don't follow the ideology blindly and have the courage to agree with what you already know, this is a fact. There is an irony here. For example, the German dog training laws clearly state that inflicting pain is not okay, while in fact they promote pain-inflicting equipment. Have you noticed that all YouTube videos that demonstrate how it works and its effectiveness are solely with dogs that are very old and never have any intention to drag their owners around? <laughs> they will not show you this type of videos with dogs like the one you're seeing right now. Force-free advocates will jump on here and convince you that what you see in this video is not how it should be done. They will say you have to start slow and take your time, etc., which could mean not to take the dog on a walk for a very long time, sometimes months and sometimes <laughs> even years. The no-pull harness and the prong collar, for example, work on the exact same concept. They bring some level of discomfort to convince the dog not to pull. I can present logical argument as to how much safer the prong collar actually is compared to the no pull harness, but that's gonna be a topic for a different video. The second dog training equipment, which the force free community highly recommends are the different types of head collars. If they worked, we will be seeing them at least on every other dog, but this is clearly not the case. One of the most vicious defenders of the force free movement Karen Overall has described it as a dominant tool. These collars are alleged to work by mimicking natural dominance behavior, thereby increasing deference and obedience to the owner. Personal observation indicates that it is not uncommon for dogs to flip out and protest as soon as the collar is put on, and in fact, some of them quite violently. Ogburn et al. noted that dogs appear more subdued while wearing a head collar than a regular collar. Without a question, any professional dog trainer will attest that dogs with more severe behavior problems will certainly resist the head collar much more than a dog that is by nature submissive and compliant. When convincing such a dog to wear a halty, are we breaking their spirit? Does it lead to a shutdown and learn helplessness? Think about this. When someone says force-free absolutely works, we have to be clear that it is not force-free. Moreover, if it works, why are we fighting to legislate and ban other methods? No one ever had to force anyone to stop using flip phones in exchange to smartphones. There were no bans on flip phones, no legislation, no science says. The choice was easy because it was obvious. Results are important to dog owners. Most trainers that use aversive when needed will show you proof that big percentage of their clients first worked extensively with force-free trainer before they contacted them for help. Of course, on the other hand, the opposite is also true. Fact is that if one was always superior, the other will be extinct very quickly without the need of legislation and bans. Clearly, this is not the case here.
if we remember Victoria Stilwell and the TV show Guardians of the Night, this was done about seven years ago. Do you know how many police dog departments used the methods that she was promoting in the TV show? None. Do you know why there is a ban against electric collars and prong collars in Germany? Because they cannot prove and convince any of the trainers that the alternatives are better. In the dog world, any new idea, any new concept that works. Additionally, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, and Ivan talked about this recently as well, right? The majority of the countries that have these tools banned, their police departments, their militaries, right? They still use the tools because yeah. they understand they're necessary still. Yeah. But they have them outlawed, and it gets back to Ivan's initial thing, which is all these politicians are not dog trainers. Yeah. They don't know what's going on with all this conversation. They're just being put in an immediate position where do you want to be the good guy or do you want to be the bad guy? Yeah. Josh, you're a politician. You're in charge of making legislation. Um, let, let me just ask you, would you ever electrocute your dog? Never. What, what, do you think it's appropriate for people out there to be electrocuting their dogs into submission to get them to sit? No. Great. I would like for you to help me outlaw this tool. Perfect. That's literally how that works. Yeah. That's literally how it works. Yeah. Uh, real quick, is is the head color just a halty? Yeah. Yeah, the, the halty, okay. the face harnesses and stuff like that. Okay. Right? Which, listen, I, I don't have a problem with them, obviously. Like, for some dogs, I think they work pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've talked to, to other trainers that use them pretty pretty exclusively and stuff. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, it is an aversive tool. Yeah. It's right? Not, it's not a force-free tool. Yeah, it's definitely not a force-free tool. <laughs> so flies around the world very fast. The next day, most dog trainers are already using it, and within a month, everybody knows about it. It becomes widely accepted. So what is the reason that the force-free community cannot convince all trainers that they have a better way? Now it's time to go over the electric collar. Okay, now that we have talked about the use of aversive in dog training in the form of negative reinforcement and positive punishment, along with some research evidence and references, it's time to go over the shock collar itself. I'm sitting outside in one of our training areas because as I'm talking, I'd like you to watch the dogs in the background interacting. They all are wearing various collars and my trainers are holding remote controls. I will not tell you which dogs have electric collars on. It could be that all have electric collars or none of them does. According to the force-free advocates, it should be pretty straightforward to spot the dogs that have been or are shocked amongst the, the ones that are trained without the aversives. They should show stress, low body posture, anxiousness, avoidance, insecurity, and of course fear possibly even aggression to other dogs or the trainers. Lots of lip licking, yawning, yelping, tuck tails, and so on. In fact, some of them must be traumatized for life. They would not even want to be here, but instead hiding in the far corner, kind of the thing that the force free refer to learn helplessness. So again, as I talk, pay attention to what goes on behind me. How did the shock collar become so popular? 
for, for this we need to look at the history because there is a good reason. Electric stimuli was originally introduced in animal learning research many years ago as a way to create discomfort in animals in a controlled and consistent manner without causing physical harm. Up to that point, the researchers were running into a lot of problems such as seriously injuring the test animals. Moreover, it was impossible to replicate a study or even to repeat a session or a trial because of inconsistency of the level of intensity. During these old behavior studies, researchers used a wide variety of high-risk aversive techniques, including food restriction, deprivation, physical restraint, water deprivation, noise burst, a mixture of mechanical and tactile stimuli such as pinching and hitting, air puffs and so on. So it is very important to note that the use of electricity was accepted as a safer alternative to all other aversive tools. And yes, even the no-pull harness. Nevertheless, the trainers who are against electric collar argue that it's harmful both physically and emotionally and can lead to increased aggression and fear, always suggesting the worst case scenario. However, the same research findings that suggest to ban electric collars, in fact, proved that when used properly, the tool is very effective. And even if there was any element of fear or discomfort during the process, it was very short-lived and the positive results always outweighed greatly the negative ones. Instead of listening to someone's interpretation of the findings, I suggest taking the time to study the research, which isn't as easy as just reading the abstract or the conclusion of the paper. For example, Schalke et al. used three groups for one of their studies. One of the groups of dogs received non-contingent random shocks, to which, of course, the dogs in this particular group responded negatively, simply because they could not make any sense of what was going on and got shocked just because. Imagine you walking into a kitchen and whatever you come in contact with, being a chair, table, microwave, you name it, sometimes it shocks you and sometimes it doesn't. Clearly, you will not be able to make sense any of it and you will most likely choose to avoid being in that room altogether whenever possible. On the other hand, if the only time you get shocked is when you turn on the toaster, you will quickly learn to avoid it, but other than that, you are very comfortable going on with your life as usual in the kitchen. This is exactly how electric fences at any farm work. Have you ever seen horses or any livestock shivering in the far out corner of the field, afraid to move anywhere because on this end of the side of the property there is electric fence? You haven't. And the reason for this is quite simple. The shock is contingent, meaning 100% predictable upon interacting with the fence. So the mess. This is where we get into like when we're teaching our clients how to use e-collars or how to use aversives and stuff yeah. like that. 
one of the big conversations we have is with people that are trying to be like nice, you know, mm-hmm. and they're trying to like, oh, well, maybe the dog didn't hear me that time, or maybe they, you know, they fixed themselves right after they did it, so I don't need to give the correction mm-hmm. and this and that. And the more non-contingent you make that punishment, meaning the more random it is, mm-hmm. right? the less predictable it is for the dog, meaning it's impossible for the dog to then avoid it because they can't make sense of that sensation, which means it actually causes more stress and fear. So you, by being 100% consistent about providing a consequence every time a dog rehearses a behavior, Mm. are actually being the nicest, the fairest, and you're going to have the best long-term results because of it. Simple. Stay away from the fence. Remember once again that even single cell organisms will approach something good and avoid something bad. As soon as we have the answer to a puzzle, we move on with our life. We never ever worry about things we have solutions for. When an electrician is getting ready to go to work in the morning, they do not panic. They, they have zero fear. Why? Because they have this answer to the puzzle, the solution I was just talking about. Every once in a long while, someone would make a mistake that will remind them to pay attention at workplace. As you can see, the force-free arguments are based on hypothetical worst-case scenario and not on actual proper use. We don't think of banning driving because of a drunk driver. We penalize the drunk drivers. Same should be with trainers who use the tools incorrectly. So far I have given you quite a few references, but that's not everything. We have plenty of scientific evidence of the benefits of the electric collar. I've already listed some, there are many others. And here I will point to a few more. The Treatment of Dangerous Behavior by Richard M. Fox, 2003. The use of comprehensive, multi-layered behavior programs involving punishment result in dramatic and long-lasting reduction in aggression, the elimination or great reduction of psychotropic medication use, and major lifestyle improvements. Behavioral differences between three breed groups of hunting dogs confronted with domestic ship by Frank O. Christiansen et al., 2001. They studied 41 elk hounds, 29 hunting dogs, and 68 English setters. Behaviors indicative of motivation for chasing or attacking sheep were examined in three different ways and were successfully suppressed. YouTube TV has no hidden fees and includes unlimited DVR space. YouTube TV. Try it free. Effects of single and repeated shock in healthy volunteers. The validity of argument in favor of contingent shock is amongst others related to safety of the electrical shock given its effectiveness. This study adds to the debate by demonstrating that 48 healthy individuals who received 480 shocks failed to experience any negative side effects such as shutdown, fear, or aggression. Side effects of contingent shock treatment by WMWJ Van Orso, 2007. When their treatment was compared to baseline measures, the results show that with all behavior challenges, individuals either significantly improved or 
did not show any change for the worst. Negative side effects failed to be found in this study. Positive side effects in the treatment of self-injurious behaviors but by Thomas R. Lynchell, 1994. The right to treatment using aversive stimuli by Emmanuel Rector and Martin Vrabic. Okay, here is one that is very important. Evaluation of an aversion-based program designed to reduce predation of native birds by dogs. An analysis of training records for 1,156 dogs. This by far is the most comprehensive study ever done on the matter. On top of the incredible number of dogs, the study was conducted within several years, from 1998 till 2007, which means that they actually did follow-ups, something that is never done by the bias studies pointing out only the negative side effects. Those studies only focus on the dog's reactions at the moment when the aversive is applied, but not concerned with the immediate recovery or the much-needed reliability at the end. It is very different when conducting a research to prove that the ideology narrative is correct versus research to find out a solution to a serious problem. In this case, the preservation of kiwi birds in New Zealand. Let's come. Okay, so let's break that down real quick also because that's yeah. an important uh, distinction as far as when we get into like, well, the, the reason why all these people are pushing it is there's no scientific evidence, there's no scientific evidence. Science can be swayed towards trying to figure out a certain outcome, right? Yeah. And again, we know that aversives in the moment can cause temporary fear or anxiety. That's the reason why they work, right? We joked about that in the last one. Yeah. We were talking about Zach George, obviously, right? <clears throat> the problem is the long-term benefits of those are really what are important, right? The long-term reduction of a dog that just doesn't jump anymore or doesn't, yeah. uh, when they're off-leash, chase after... Uh, different animals or livestock or birds in this case, right? The reliability of a dog not leaving your perimeter after understanding the boundary that you want to set with it so they can be reliable off of the leash, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? They only study the in-moment thing. And then past that, there's no long-term follow-up as far as the dogs that were trained positive only and how reliable those results actually were. Yeah. Right. So this one was cool because since it was done over multiple years, they were able to see over multiple years how much these dogs' lives were able to flourish. And the thing that they were trying to study literally went away, like long term went away, not just in the moment like yeah. that they always say. Yep. The New Zealand study to this one, a study done by the advocates of positive reinforcement only training. The welfare consequences and efficacy of training pet dogs with remote electronic training collars in comparison to reward-based training. Done by Jonathan Cooper, Daniel Mills et al. in 2013 at Lincoln University in UK. This particularly poorly conducted study is referred to a lot as the proof or superiority of positive reinforcement. They had to demonstrate that dogs can be recalled and stopped from chasing sheep. Ironically, dogs were kept on leash and the sheep were in small playpens which restricted movement, which cannot trigger any chase instinct in the dogs. Subsequently, in her study, efficacy of dog training with and without remote electronic collars versus a focus on positive reinforcement, in 2020, China et al. used the same video material to basically double down on the same findings. 
I tried to have Professor Mills on my podcast to discuss these findings, but after the initial contact, he refused to come forward. Fortunately, in 2021, China's... This is the biggest thing, right? So, like, Ivan has had a lot of scientists and stuff on his podcast to discuss these types of things. Nobody wants to argue the point because there's holes that can be pointed out. So in the Mm -hmm. case that he was discussing where they were trying to teach dogs how to not chase sheep, obviously, Mm -hmm. the experiment, they controlled the environment to set themselves up for success. So they made the environment easy enough where the positive reinforcement would work, Mm -hmm. where the competing motivator, they controlled it and and made it so that it wasn't that motivating to the dog to want to be enticed by where we know prey drive primarily is triggered when the animals are moving and or running so by restricting those animals ability to move or run you could get the results you were looking for but there was no proof to show if it actually was able to be followed through in the real life when those dogs are actually going to need to be hurting these animals and not chasing them Mm -hmm. work was reviewed by rebecca sargison and jan mclean They pointed out many flaws in the paper and concluded that such research cannot be used to justify the banning of e-collars. The persistent challenge with research that solely focuses on positive reinforcement is the tendency to make grandiose statements in their papers without providing sufficient evidence to support their claims beyond the study. To ensure that training methods are effective and evidence-based, it's crucial to critically evaluate research. These are not the only studies. There is a wealth of information out there for those of you who want to learn more. If needed, I'm always up for respectful discussion or a debate on scientific findings as well as hands-on training and behavior cases. As the force-free community continues to push for a ban on electric collars, they're using very misleading fear-mongering tactics in their efforts. They would do whatever it takes to present the use of electric collar as cruel and unethical. Their analogies and examples have no basis in proper electric collar training methods. They strive to use scientific jargon and give beautiful examples when it comes to positive reinforcement training. However, all examples that they offer on electric collar training clearly demonstrate their lack of understanding of the proper use. You might have seen a demonstration by force-free trainer followed by an explanation of how the electric collar works. Here is typically how it goes. They will get a volunteer, strap the collar on the wrist. We got a little bit of buffering going on here. (laughs) Did your internet go out again? I don't know, man. Shouldn't have. Come on. We got like nine minutes left. You need a buffer on me? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus freak. Come on. Come on, buddy. Volunteer will feel pretty high level of discomfort and react ac- accordingly. When asked to share the experience, the volunteer will state that it was very painful and that they wouldn't like to try it again. Next, of course, comes the statement, I would never do this to my dog. Let me explain why this is misleading. I'm going to give you a simple example. Let's say I want this cup. For whatever reason, I'm extremely, extremely fixated on it. The cup is filled with some substance that is dangerous if I drink it. You can offer me another cup or even many more cups. 
perhaps some money or whatever we think it may be that I like a lot. <laughs> for one reason or another, I'm not failing for it. I could care less what you're offering me. And as a matter of fact, the more you're trying to deflect my attention from my cup, the more obsessed I become with it. One other option will be to put that cup away for good and problem is solved, unless we cannot put the cup away or there are many more such cups around with that same poison. Let's assume that poison is very tasty and reinforcing, but in the long run, it will cause cancer or something. So you <laughs> get the idea. Or Bottom line, yeah. positive reinforcement is not working. Negative punishment is not working. Just as I have already pointed out through referencing studies, this is not that uncommon. Someone might even suggest psychotropic medication in desperation, while the answer is actually quite simple. We can add a safe aversive and allow me to make a choice. So let's say I receive level two on, a, on the collar, which is a very mild discomfort. Now, in return, I will have to make a decision what to do next. I will outweigh the pros and the cons, the cost and the benefit, and then respond accordingly. If the benefit outweighs the cost, I will keep my cup despite any discomfort. However, if the intensity increases to a point where the cost outweighs the benefit, I will reevaluate my decision. Ultimately, what must be clear is that I am in control of the situation. It is my choice to be stubborn or not. I know I am not telling you anything new here. It all goes back to that fundamental law to approach or avoid something. If you didn't pay for your parking spot, I guarantee you that you will not go in prison. Typically, the police officer will give you a warning or worst case scenario, issue a ticket and tow your car away. But most definitely, you're not going in prison. Most definitely, your license will not be suspended for the next 10 years. The demonstration we discussed earlier is similarly illogical. I'm going to explain how electric collar works. First thing first, no one can die from electric collar. Without going into great detail, it is important to understand the relations between voltage and current when we try to scare each other. Here is a study by the New Zealand Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, Dix 1991. That should clear up a lot of the misconceptions. Here is a study by... Okay, so this study that he's talking about, just because he doesn't read it, I want to read it for everybody. So everybody always asks me the same question of like, can the electric collar actually hurt your dog? Like sometimes if your dog will develop a hot spot or something, people will equate that to like you're using high levels and it's burning the skin, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Not the case. So what this says is <clears throat> the output of an e-collar tested by the New Zealand Department of Scientific and Industrial Research was found to produce 3,000 times less electrical energy than that allowed by standards for electric fences, six times less electrical energy than that produced by the static discharge produced by walking on a carpet, and 50 times less than what is considered necessary to reach pain thresholds. New Zealand Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, Dix 1991. That should clear up a lot of the misconceptions. 
Now let me explain how the electric collar actually works and what happens, how it communicates with the brain. So we have these two contact points. I'm sure everybody has it's to some level familiar with the electric collar. The electricity really travels from here to here under the skin, right under skin. It doesn't travel anywhere else. It does not create physical harm. There is plenty of studies as I've pointed out already. But it tricks the brain to respond in a certain way. It basically sends up kind of like a panic message to the brain to say, watch out, you need to escape or you need to avoid that discomfort because it leads to something dangerous. And this is really the trick. And this is what we're doing when we're using electric collar. It is very easy for me or any trainer that is uh, expert using electric collar to condition, to teach somebody to accept much higher level without sending that panic message to the brain. All we need to do is a simple methodical process. Like we start with a very low level, we press few times to where the brain accepts what's going on and realizes that there is no need to panic. Then we go to a next level and the next level gradually we increase the levels. Of course, there will be some physical discomfort and some reflexes, like probably if the color is here, your finger will twitch. And that's how far it goes. At that point, the brain knows that that's a trick. It's not going to go into a panic and search for necessarily for responses. Here is also a references from science on, on this. With prior exposure, experienced human subjects tolerated at least twice the electrical intensity tolerated by naive subjects. Kachmarek et al, 1991. Some other interesting fact of importance is that individuals, regardless of size, age, age, etc., are more or less tolerant to the impulse. Generally speaking, women will tolerate higher levels than men. What are the benefits of a band? What's going on in Europe today? We know that at least for 5-10 years in certain countries, the color has been banned. So what is going on there? The truth is that the people that use electric color had to make a choice. Very few decided not to use it. Most of the trainers continue to use electric color. The only difference is that they hide. They, they don't use it in public places. They train secretly behind closed doors and so on. Second option, if they don't use the electric collar as the best form of aversive, then they have to resort and go back to the primitive ways that we talked about how scientists were using all those primitive aversive tools prior to the electric collar. This clearly is not a good solution. Yes, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel that we are doing something to protect the dogs. But ultimately, we are actually uh, creating arguably way more damage. How? Because if the collar is banned, there is no education. We, somebody like me cannot teach uh, an average dog trainer how to use it correctly. And if they decide to use it, now they have to go through trial and error and probably do a lot of mistakes along the way. Or as I said, they will have to resort to use any other form of aversives that 
actually will cause on top of everything else physical damage to the dog. There are few different systems that each and use electric collar differently. I don't want to go in detail here to say which ones are preferable, but as a rule of thumb, when electric collar is used properly, there is nothing in the dog's behavior or the body language that will hint the use of electric shock. There will be no lip licking, no tuck tail, overall suppression. When you're looking like a snack, and now you're hungry oh, for one. Jesus. John Cena! Hefty, hefty, hefty! I, I don't see anybody there. Pression and so on. Oh my God. <laughs> if we compare a group that has no experience with shock collar, now, just to clarify, obviously you talked, you know, the dogs that are trained properly using the e-collar, you won't see signs that they've been trained with the e-collar, meaning you won't see signs of stress and stuff. Obviously, yeah. per things we talked about before, he's referring to long-term, right? Yes, in the moment while you are doing the training, the dog may show signs of stress. The dog likely will show signs of stress. Yeah. But long-term, like if you were to come over my house and see my four dogs and my relationship with them and watch me do things with them, at this point, you would not be able to tell that they had been punished for miscellaneous behaviors throughout their life. Yeah. The one that has That's why he's showing these dogs, collar, obviously. It yeah. should be impossible to tell which one is which. The trainers that can create that type of high level of training are the people who can teach the proper use of electric collar training. Education over ban is essential for the advancement of dog training. The extremists will not change their mind, but many of the people who have been listening blindly to false narrative, I advise to do some research on their own. Of course, don't forget that the algorithms will feed you what you want to hear. So you need to search intelligently for new information, not the one that you already know of. In closing, I must also say that I am predominantly play-based trainer. I use positive reinforcement when positive reinforcement works. But I do like to have the opportunity to use form of aversive to stop dangerous behaviors or wherever else it's needed. Wherever else the positive reinforcement is not working. Some of the force-free community advocates strongly advocate for a cause despite being aware that it has flaws and does not align with the best interests of dogs and trainers. These individuals are primarily motivated by their strong belief in the ideology rather than desire to promote the well-being of the dogs. It is important to critically evaluate and question the intentions, reasoning and evidence behind the claims and make decisions based on all research and experience available instead of cherry-picking studies that suit your beliefs. Thank you for watching. Some waiting music. That's <laughs> good. All right, guys. So, long episode, obviously. Long episode that we watched, obviously. Very, very dense, right? Even myself, like I said, yeah. this is my second time uh, for first time watching it, second time actually listening to it, and even I am taking more pieces of information from that. Yeah. The fact of the matter and what Ivan is trying to show in this is that the true science behind all of this is so flawed that we can't make distinctions off of it, right? Mm -hmm. We could cherry pick all these different studies. Zach George cherry picks studies and all of these veterinarian associations that are trying to push for positive only training and medication and all mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff are cherry picking 
studies that prove their point, yet there are numerous studies out there that discredit some of those also. Yep. But they're obviously not going to use those ones. But because they are the loud majority and because we could tell every single one of those organizations has an agenda behind them unfortunately their kind of stances are rising to the top of the equation and then you'll see in part three that we do when we break down the dialogue between ivan and zach and some of the conversations they had back and forth with things they don't want to discuss the other side they're basically pretending it's not there or discrediting it by saying well that study you showed was from 2002, and the studies I showed were from 2020. Mm-hmm. But the age of the study does not discredit the accuracy of the study. Yeah. But they won't discuss it. Mm-hmm. So, nonetheless, oh boy. That's what stirred up all this. Zach George's initial video stirred up this whole conversation. Ivan made that video that is pretty clearly a response video oh, to yeah. what. Uh, Zach has been pushing without mm-hmm. naming anything, obviously. And then that turned into the war that's happening right now amongst the dog training world, <laughs> which we're going to get into all the nuances of it. But I felt it important to break down the second video so that we had both sides and both both kind of perspectives here so that we could then discuss the conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I would recommend everybody do is if you haven't already, watch the video that I posted um, two weeks ago, two episodes ago, episode 102. Five, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Or 106? 106, I think. 106. It's 106. It's Zach George's War Against Balance Training. Mm-hmm. Watch that video. Obviously, you've watched this one already. And before we talk about the conversation amongst them, make the decision for yourself. Most mm-hmm. of the people listening to this are average dog owners. We've got plenty of trainers and stuff also, but a lot mm-hmm. of average dog owners. And I want you to listen to both arguments and ask yourself the question of which one makes more sense to you. Yep. Because one of the arguments is 100% this is your bad, you're bad, where the other one is simply this is why what I'm doing is accurate, mm-hmm. right? So there's a difference between tearing down somebody else versus positioning yourself as the person of authority, right? Yep. Through knowledge, experience, and results. Mm-hmm. So do that, and then we will... Uh, We'll dive more into this conversation next time and, and do part three and, and summarize it all and wrap it all up, and we'll see if there's anything new between now and then that happens in this world. Oh, I'm sure there will be. So, you got anything to, to throw in there? <laughs> Not really. It's just uh, <clears throat> I think Ivan did a, a great great rebuttal. Um, I don't know. That was... I couldn't even imagine putting that together. I know. That was so chuckful Like, I don't prep stuff. for any of these fucking podcasts. <laughs> and I can only imagine how much time that took for him to yeah. compile all of that I'm sure that was that whole two weeks yeah, right. that he took from that first video, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see because I haven't really... I mean, I know that I've been seeing the banter, you know, when I'm uploading mm-hmm. YouTube stuff. Like, it'll show me yeah. live and stuff. Like, But I haven't watched it because I knew we were probably going to do a video. So I'm going to blind react to it. That's right. Um, it's going to be uh, very interesting, I'm sure. Because yeah. I did see uh, like a, a few seconds of like Ivan's like, and when he actually says in response to Zach George, he made a he made a it's a I think it's a seven or eight minute long yeah or no I think it was like four or five minutes it was super yeah, short yeah. response video to to Zach yeah so it was really funny I was like we'll oh, watch boy. that and break that down next I'm, week because that's pretty funny I'm excited for that so so listen guys this is the drama side of things you know yeah. I like my drama yeah. I like talking about the drama <laughs> so I like presenting but, the drama to yeah. all of you guys yeah but also it's I think it's a very important conversation that's happening. Right 
right most now. certainly you know and it's like who knows like the the ending of this conversation where it's actually going to put dog training mm-hmm. so yeah i mean listen there there have been already in the states many proposals to actually have these tools banned right like to the point where like laws have been written up mm-hmm. right or bills or whatever the fuck they're called i think mm-hmm. it's i'm just a bill <laughs> yeah sitting here yeah, on capitol, capitol hill. hill right so <laughs> i think that i think that there have been whatever whatever the fuck they're called yeah right actually written up mm-hmm. uh in proposal to ban these tools right yeah. so this is a serious conversation right now because it is something that we are facing as dog professionals of it could happen. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? It's happened in a lot of other countries already, and we've seen the negative side effects of it, right? Um, so so we have to continue having these conversations, obviously, and yeah. um, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So. And I guess real quick, has uh, Caesar ever used, like... Yeah, he has his uh, halo yeah his little collar. halo thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say he doesn't I, use them that much. I, no. I don't. I mean, listen, I don't fucking know Caesar, obviously, but like just in watching all the shows and stuff, I remember in the old days with the dog whisperer. Right, mm-hmm. there were a couple episodes where he utilized the e collar. Yeah, a couple of them. I was gonna say even if not, he uses. Adversive. He's definitely not. A, oh yeah, I mean, it's his training is all aversive. All aversive, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so I, I mean, yeah. it would be nice to see someone like in his, you know higher i mean he's probably on top of the totem pole you know like kind of put in an opinion but yeah we'll see i think he's i think he's discussed these types of things you know and obviously he's a proponent of all of it Mm -hmm. you know i think all these guys i i think the thing that as balanced dog trainers we all need to continue doing a good job of is 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 showing and highlighting not necessarily even the training, but all of the the well-being side of things and the positivity that comes from the training, right? Yeah. The freedoms and how much happier the dog is able to be post-training because of it and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Because sometimes we can get too hung up on the training side of things, right? Oh, for and sure. While we're training the dog, are they happy? Are they not happy? This, that. It's like, like Ivan was saying, the long-term study of this kind of stuff and the long-term well-being of the dog is really what's important in this stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. So... But yeah, I think I think you're right. Showing the overall like mm-hmm. benefit of oh, there's this short you know aversion mm-hmm. that happens, but it makes the rest of this dog's life yep. way less aversive. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, for sure. And again, I've I've even gone as far as saying too. You know, like I think through this conversation, it is important to to figure out places where you can be more positive in your dog training. You oh know yeah, what I mean. Um, and maybe be a little bit more selective of where you're utilizing an aversive when it comes to more serious corrections and stuff like and, yeah. and see if there's, you know, ways that you can go about finding the best of both worlds with stuff. But yeah. to say that we're just going to completely eliminate the use of them altogether. I mean, I think there's so many reasons why that's just nonsense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like you even said in in some of Zach's stuff, you know, you're like, I could agree with this, you know, yeah, it's, sure. it's not. It's not like you don't understand that, yeah, that there's some people that are, I guess you could say, heavy-handed sure. or, or whatever, mm-hmm. but I think there's a time and place for each quadrant. Like Ivan was saying, it's like mm-hmm. you, you take those, you take half of your learning theory out. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're yeah. shooting yourself in the foot a little bit sometimes. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's not for every dog, but like let's say like the more aggressive cases, you know, you need to have every piece of learning theory sure. to work through that, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's me. 
So, you know, we'll continue the conversation more uh, next time. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll keep plugging away. Yep. See you.